0: Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, at scmoline.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 3, 1 through 32. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechur, the son of Iri, Emri built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshazabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana repaired, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Pasea, and Meshullam the son of Besoadiah, repaired the gate of Yeshenea. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, they repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite the men of Gibeon and the men of, oh, excuse me, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harheah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphaah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Harimuth repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harem and Hasub, the son of Pehath-Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bech, or excuse me, beth Hakharam repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhosea, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the pool of Shalah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district, of Kiah repaired the district. After him, their brothers repaired Bavi, the son of Hinadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section of the opposite, the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Barak, the son of Zabai repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Measiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benuai, the son of Hennadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress into the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel, Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of, of Shelemiah and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, into the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, um, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah for the last few weeks. Uh, we're just a few chapters into the story. And what we've seen in chapters one and two uh, of this, this book of Nehemiah, uh, is, is God assigns to Nehemiah this monstrous task. Uh, he, he's, he's given him a vision. He's given this, this task to go back to his homeland, which is 100 miles away uh, from where he is at the moment when, when he receives this vision. Uh, To go back and to rebuild the ruins. Um, You see, 70 or so years before this moment, uh, Jerusalem was ransacked. It totally destroyed, the temple defiled, the homes dismantled, and the wall, the the fortress, the thing that protected the entire city, was brought to a rubble heap. Now, Nehemiah's assignment from God was to go back and to reconstruct, to rebuild the wall that's around it. Now, we've seen in in the story of Ezra, other work has taken place. They rebuilt the altar, the temple, people's homes are starting to be rebuilt. And this is one of the last pieces, speaking in in the terms of infrastructure, that needs to be rebuilt. And this is not a small wall. This is not like a a little eight-foot, you know, I actually built a wall downstairs a couple weeks ago. It was like a bunch of two by fours and drywall in the kids' room. uh, Drywall, two by fours, eight foot tall. Like it was so much bigger than that. We're talking a wall that is about. Approximately two and a half miles long, right? So, from, if you go from here uh, to uh, the, the high V in Rock Island, that's about two and a half miles. Um, so, that long, uh, 40 feet tall in some places, some places even taller than that. And this wall is about eight feet wide. Um, this is a wall that's made of heavy stones. I think, is there an image in there? Uh, if, if you can find it, there's an image of these stones just to give you a visual representation. Those stones on the left there, that's Nehemiah's wall. Stones on the right are the the old city walls that that got destroyed by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, But these stones are massive stones. you are talking anywhere from two to eight tons. And Nehemiah has been charged to move this stone without trucks, without cranes, without power tools, just pure manpower. And while he has this monstrous task in front of him, it's meant to take place all while being threatened by the neighbors who are very critical and do not appreciate this rebuild project that's taking place. You could say that, that Nehemiah has an elephant of a task. And there's a saying that goes like this. The best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. One bite at a time. And, and what we see here in chapter three is Nehemiah gives us a bit of a different approach to eating an elephant. He's, his approach is to, to throw a citywide barbecue um, Chapter three, which Shay just read, and I'm not going to read all those names again because that was pretty impressive. Um, chapter three is made up of mostly names um, and locations, sections of the wall. And if I had time, I could. I've got these images that are pretty cool that show you who is building where along the city walls. I don't have time to show them all. Um, but but names, locations, and the word repaired appears 38 times in 32 verses. Now, when you read your Bible, context clues help a lot. Literary clues help us a lot to understand what's going on. And when you see that amount of names, when you see that amount of of the word repeated over and over and over again, it becomes very clear what the point of the text is. Chapter 3 is telling us that the feast of the elephant has begun, right? The work that Nehemiah has been called back to Jerusalem to charge, to lead the charge of, is underway. And what we see here is that many hands make light work. Now, for many of us, I don't know how many people have ever, ever read Nehemiah chapter three in your own personal devotion time. Now, here, here's what I, I'll make a confession here. When I'm, I'm reading through passages like this that seem to be a lot of names, uh, I do the old skimmeroo, right? I'm like, okay, don't know who that guy is, don't know that guy. And so I just tend to like, it's, treat the, the passage like a flyover text, like if people treat the Midwest. You just sort of zoom right over the top, get to the good stuff. But Not only is chapter three crucial to the story that's unfolding here in in Nehemiah, when you see what's going on here, this is dramatic, it's exciting, it's invigorating because what we have here is one dude coming back from from Susa, uh, the land in Persia, coming back home to rebuild the ruins and you see heaps and heaps of buy-in from the people that he's coming to speak to, Um, which is really exciting to be, I don't know if you've ever been part of something like that, like this, this big movement. And what you're seeing is this big movement, big excitement, big invigoration to tackle a monstrous uh, task. And, and what we see in this chapter is that there is essentially a hammer in every hand. Everybody is swinging a hammer. Everybody's lifting rocks. Everybody's pulling their weight. And we see this surge of momentum here in this project of rebuilding the wall from start to end. Now there's a lot of barriers that get thrown up in the way, but it never slows them down. They keep pressing on and on and on until this project, this massive project, done in only 52 days. By the time you get to chapter six, we see 52 days has elapsed and this, this, the wall around the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. Nehemiah's success comes against all odds, and we'll start to see all of those those hurdles that get put up in front of him in the coming weeks. But the success comes against all odds. You might even say it's supernatural how this thing gets done. I think Nehemiah would also agree with that conclusion because in in chapter 2, verse 20, Nehemiah sort of prophetically gives God all of the credit. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And God does make them prosper, but he brings this prosperous success about through some fairly ordinary and natural means. And so that's what we're taking a look at today. We're we're, we're looking at the how and the who of rebuilding the ruins. But Here's the deal. What we see in chapter three of Nehemiah isn't unique to that story. There are so many parallels between the story of Nehemiah and the church today. Like Nehemiah, God has given the church a huge mission, disciple the nations, right? Uh, Advance the kingdom of heaven, and God intends to bring that about through the same means. And so that's where we're going to go today. We're going to look at those things, those connections, draw those parallels, but first let us make our way through Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, to understand what's going on in chapter three, we have to understand what happened in chapter two. All of the movement, all of the momentum, all of this, like, let's go attitude that you see the people of Jerusalem is a product of Nehemiah's vision casting back in chapter two. He arrives in Jerusalem. He takes a look at the walls, walks around, gets on his mule, does this walkabout through uh, the the perimeter of the city, surveying the walls, how bad are things really? And what he finds is that things are really bad. Some places, the wall is destroyed so badly, he he has to dismount his mule and and actually walk on foot to get around it or, or turn around and go the other way. He just can't get by. There's so much rubble. Now, once he's done that, He goes back to the people, goes back to to the the city center and and states the obvious. He says, guys, look, things aren't looking good for us. Our our city is like half built. Um, The walls are just destroyed still, which not only makes us vulnerable to attack from outside people, which they're lingering, they're they're looming out there. He says, our city is a laughingstock. The glory that it's meant to possess, the, the, the fortress, the, the buttress of strength, right? Because they're the people of God. It, it's, it's absent. It says, we're vulnerable and we're a laughing stock. We're suffer, suffering from derision. Now, Nehemiah isn't saying how bad things are just to be inflammatory. He's not just trying to get people like psyched up or making them feel really, really bad about their current moment. See, that's, that's one of the, the tendencies or the tactics that cable news deploys. One of the tactics that, that political social media tends to use is try to inflame everybody, get them angry, get them, get them so angry or so depressed with how bad things are out there, the current reality that it paralyzes people. It, it makes them feel like the, the task is so big so overwhelming that nothing we do can actually move the ball forward in the right direction. And so what happens is we get left with, I think this is the state of our country right now, both sides, you get left with angry people who have no agency except to vote once every four years. That's it. That's all you got, right? Because somebody else has got to do it. Somebody else has got to tackle the big problem. Well, Nehemiah isn't there to to be inflammatory. He's not there to point fingers or to to throw stones. Nehemiah has shown up to bring real change. Nehemiah has a God-sized vision for the city. Nehemiah has this vision. It's been given to him by God to restore the city of Jerusalem. And what we find out at the end of chapter two is that it's not a pipe dream. It's not like this wishful thinking of, well, fingers crossed, maybe, maybe God will just like snap his fingers and everything will go right back up to where it was. Nehemiah says, I have this vision, but God has also made the provisions for us to move toward that end, to, to seek out, to work for real change, because King Artaxerxes has given me papers. He's given me the credentials that we need to go after this work. Not only that, but he's given me the supplies. He's given me permission to get all of the timber that's necessary to reconstruct these walls. And he's saying to the people, I've got a way that we can make it actually happen. Change is possible. And what we see is that the vision of future glory has a powerful effect on the people of Jerusalem. They are brought in. They hear what he has to say. And they respond in verse 18 of chapter two by saying, let us rise up and build, right? I just got this like, let's get it, you know, mentality of the people. They're compelled to take action. And they say, let us strengthen our hands for this good work. They're taking ownership. They're taking responsibility. They say, we have agency. We can do something about what's in front of us. Now that's what compelling vision does. A compelling vision grips people. It captivates people. And then when they, they're captivated, they're just like compelled to move toward that end. Compelling vision moves us. Now, Scripture tells us this, and Scripture tells us the opposite. If we don't have a compelling vision, things will fall apart. Proverbs 29, 18 says, without vision, the people will perish. The alternative to a compelling vision is stagnancy, or even worse, demise. Now, oh, I'm used to quoting uh, Tim Keller, but I'm going to quote a different Keller today. Uh, this is Miss Helen Keller, who says, "The only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision." Like she gets it. This this is the power of vision. Now, God does not leave his people. He does not leave the church today without a vision because God is for our flourishing. Jesus came so that we could have life to the fullest, to the maximum of whatever life has to offer at its best. Jesus desires to give that to his people. And Jesus embeds his vision in the Lord's prayer when he teaches us to pray. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be, Thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There it is. That, that's the vision that Jesus brings to the church. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the crown jewel of vision casting. Jesus gives the church the crown jewel of vision casting. There is nothing more epic, nothing more glorious, nothing more compelling than thinking that heaven can come down to earth and actually doing something about it. But the problem is that too often, the Lord's prayer rolls off the tip of our tongue. Like we we mouth the words, but we remain unmoved by it. Right? I, I, I learned this prayer when I was young, very young. And my kids learned this prayer when they were very young. And we prayed every night together. And I, I find myself sitting there at bedtime, really hoping that we can just get this over with so I can go downstairs, praying this prayer and it having no effect on me. And I think that happens to other Christians fairly often as well. It rolls off the tongue, but we're un- moved by it. And what we don't realize is that Jesus gives us the Lord's prayer not necessarily to move God because all of the things that Jesus teaches teaches us to pray to God, God is already about those things. God's already for those things. He's already working to that end. Jesus gives us the Lord's prayer to move us. That, that our hearts would be moved and see God for who He really is. That, that our desires would be aligned to God and, and, and the desire that He has for the kingdom of heaven to invade every square inch of this earth. For His will to be done. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer so that it would move us. But if we don't allow the Lord's Prayer, if we don't, if we kind of get numb to this vision that Jesus puts before us, If we don't see it, if we don't get captivated by it, what happens is that the church becomes stagnant. The the church, the vision isn't driving the church. Like we just get okay. We get comfortable playing church, showing up on Sundays, singing great songs, and then we gotta go on and, well, see you next week. And if that stagnancy continues through one generation to the next, eventually all that's left is ruins. ruins. Now, I think that there are two main causes. I've been thinking about this. Why why do we remain unmoved by the Lord's Prayer? This compelling vision that Jesus puts forward to all of his disciples. I think there are two causes. The first one is that we don't realize the caliber of glory that we pray for when we ask for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We just can't comprehend like how massive of a prayer that is, how, how unbelievably glorious it would be to see heaven and earth collide. And when we hear on earth as it is in heaven, I think what we tend to think of this is like Jesus's little catchphrase, that that line is to Jesus what to infinity and beyond is to Buzz Lightyear. It's just kind of what he says, Right? But when we say this, when Jesus teaches us to pray this, he's actually teaching us to pray for heaven to come down here. That this space that we occupy, our homes, our cities, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, that these places would be redeemed and restored to glory. That sin would be rendered powerless. That broken hearts would be mended that sorrow would be changed to glory and joy that the darkness would give way to the light this is what jesus is telling us to pray for now i don't think jesus teaches us to pray for something that he doesn't intend to deliver on he he, he doesn't do this bait and switch game with us the vision that jesus gives the church is huge it's so huge that every other vision, every other, whether it's in the, in the business world or a sports team or even like a family goal, whatever, every one of those other goals pale in comparison to this massive vision that Jesus lays out in front of the church. Now, our tendency is to get swept up in these lesser visions right, to give ourselves to things like career and comfort. Now, those things are good things, gifts to be enjoyed, but when we elevate them to an ultimate thing, it now competes with the king. It becomes a competition between my kingdom and God's kingdom. So I'm there sabotaging my own prayer. It's not God's kingdom. It's my kingdom that I'm concerned. If my little vision is, is running the show, it's running my life, I have pushed out this bigger vision out of the way now, C.S. Lewis speaks to this. He's got a great quote that I had printed out, and I just realized that it's left on my desk. But let me summarize it for you. He says, we are creatures that are far too easily pleased. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition. And when God looks at that, what he finds is that, not, not that our, our desires are too strong, like, like we've just got something that God can't meet, what he finds is that our desires are too small. And he likens it to a child who is forever stuck in the slums making mud pies because he can't envision a holiday at the sea. See, this is how we operate in our lives. That was a pretty good summary. Pat on my back. <laughs> but that's how it goes. Like the vision Jesus lays out, man, it just takes the back burner. And we just throw these other things in front of us. Now, what Jesus wants to do for his church, he wants us to to wake us up to the reality, to the glory of what he's calling us to. Are you, are you finding yourself desirous of the kingdom of heaven being here on earth? Or, Or are you stuck making mud pies? Now, the second thing that I think causes this sort of stagnation is that we become, we might be captivated by this idea. Like, we love the idea of on earth as it is in heaven, but we don't see our part in it. This is what I mean. It's like, I like the idea of God restoring this whole thing. I love it, actually. But what the heck am I going to do to contribute to this? Like, like, what do I have to offer to this massive work that Jesus says he's going to accomplish through the church? And so we think that, and then we sideline ourselves, and we think, well, I'll just leave it to the pros, right? The super-Christians. But God doesn't give this vision only to the pros, okay? And I just mean the people that are in in vocational ministry. God doesn't give that vision to just those people. He gives it to all of Christians so that we would all rise up and take action. Now, we see the same thing happening in Nehemiah chapter 3. He goes up and says, I got a vision. Here's what God's calling us to. Here's the means in which we have. Here's the, the skills, the resources that we have at our fingertips. And what happens? The people rise up. The people get to work. Now they could very easily say the same things that we tend to say to ourselves. I'm not qualified. I have no idea what I'm doing. How am I gonna, you know? They could have said said the same thing because when we read through this, I'm not gonna read the whole thing again, but in this list of names, you also find their vocations. The people doing the work are not your professional constructors, they're not engineers. they're not architects. The people that are doing the rebuilding are clergy. You got priests and the Levites. You've got goldsmiths who are are guys that are not necessarily used to throwing stones around, rather working with intricate fine detail. You've got perfumers who I don't know what they bring to the table. You've got politicians who you would think that they would just gum up the works, but here they are, and entire families coming to the wall and say, we are here to work. Now, the same thing's happening today, that God deploys ordinary people, ordinary people like you and like me, to accomplish his mission. Those who God calls into his kingdom, he equips for kingdom work. Christian, if you have been called in the kingdom of light, God has called you, to get to work. In fact, we're told that we have been saved for good works. Now, Ephesians chapter four does a really good job of keying us into this. I'm gonna jump there. Um, I don't know if I have it on the screen. I don't think I do, but let me just read this to you. It says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 10, it says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. Talking about Jesus there. That he might fill all things. Now, so under this context of filling all things, the apostle Paul is going to expound upon the things that he's filling. So, take a look at this. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. You say those who are in ministry, those maybe vocational ministers. God gave those people to the church to do what in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work Of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. The Apostle Paul tells us the people that God deploys for ministry are ordinary people, the saints. Now, who are the saints? Who are the holy ones? Now, the saints are not this like upper echelon of like super religious and super competent spiritual people. The way that the Bible speaks about saints is anybody who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, where their sins are washed away, they receive a new identity of foreign righteousness that's been credited to them by Christ. And so the saints, the holy ones, are those who stand in the righteousness of Christ, not their own accomplishments. So that means, Christian, you are a, a saint. You are one of God's holy ones. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul presses this again. He, he reminds the people that he's talking to: listen, you weren't of noble birth, that there was nothing spectacular about you when you were called. But God chose what was foolish, God chose what was weak, so that he would display his glory. See, we were in the same way, that that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were trapped in darkness, bound up by sin. And Jesus does the real hard work of redemption for us. See, Jesus accomplishes that which we cannot do for ourselves. He bore our sins and the brokenness in his own body. And he paid for our guilt and our shame on the cross. And so by his blood, you are cleansed. And there in that moment, when you put your faith in Jesus, there's this great exchange that happens. All of your sin and brokenness and filth and yuck gets transferred onto Jesus once and for all. All of it, past, present, future. All dealt with right there. And Jesus takes his righteousness because he's the only one who could live the perfect life the only one who could obey the Father and do his will. Listen, if you would just draw a circle around Jesus, everywhere Jesus went was the kingdom of heaven because he did the will of his Father on earth as in heaven. See, it's by this exchange that we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. This is the only thing, Faith in this is the only thing that will move you from darkness into the light. We are completely dependent upon the grace of God. And God doesn't just get us into the kingdom, like get us through the threshold and say, hey, you just hang out here. He fills us with his spirit. And not only are we the holy ones, but we are the sent ones. He sends us back out. So we are now ambassadors for Christ. Jesus is making an appeal through us. If you've been brought in the kingdom of God, you are called to gospel work. This is what Ephesians 4 tells us, that it's, it's what, what's called every member ministry. You look at it in, in Nehemiah chapter three, it's the fact that there's a hammer in every hand. God does that, he brings us in, he calls us out of darkness into his light and says, now go back out there for me, get to work, let's go do something. Now, when you hear this, all right, uh, maybe this is the first time you heard that if your identity is in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're actually a saint. And then the other part of that might be a little bit shocking is that now you've got a job to do. And you're wondering, what in the world am I gonna do? I can't preach, I can't teach, I don't trust myself giving anybody counsel. I can barely even pray aloud. What am I gonna do here to help the kingdom of heaven? What am I going to do to build the kingdom of heaven here on earth? Now, it's easy to get bombarded with uh, the feelings of inadequacies. It's easy, easy to get stalled out to feel like, man, I'd, my hands are just frozen in my pockets. It's called the frozen chosen, right? There's nothing I can do. What am I gonna do about it? But well, let me assure you, if your insufficiencies did not hinder God from bringing you into his kingdom, then God can overcome your insufficiencies to be used for the kingdom. Now, God did this in chapter 3 of Nehemiah. Uh, he, he, all of their def- deficiencies, their, their um, insufficiencies, God had an answer for them. We see this in the fact that God is the one that's pulling the strings behind King Artaxerxes uh, to to not only commission Nehemiah to go back, but to give him the supplies that he needs, the, the, the resources to rebuild. And in the same way, God generously supplies the church with all that she needs. His divine power, Peter tells us, the divine power of God gives the church everything that's needed for life and godliness. In other words, He's given us everything that we need for building the kingdom of heaven. And we see this in part in the fact that God gives the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the shepherds, the evangelists to the church. These are resources that God has entrusted to the church. Men to guide the church into righteousness. In other words, you could say that Jesus gives the church leaders and the top Job of the leaders is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. God calls men like Nehemiah to head up a battalion of kingdom people, elders to lead the charge in a a church, a local church giving itself to the work of kingdom advancement, or we say it here in renewing the city. People to teach and equip and to deploy other people in service to the kingdom of heaven while they live as an example to emulate. Now, Nehemiah is the guy. He, Nehemiah is him. And we see how Nehemiah thinks and works and strategizes. He, he has the resources that God's given him. He has the people. He's got the manpower. And now he works to strategically place, we see 45 different quadrants broken down throughout that whole thing. 45 different quadrants to stick individual families, individual kinsmen to go about rebuilding. And they get to work. Now, there are some people who are doing the work that just do what's right in front of them. We see this kind of repeated. Um, They're the people who who are working on the wall and it's right across from their house. Or or even the the priests, um, the the part of the wall that they're rebuilding is right by the temple. That's sort of where they set up shop. But there are other men that God calls from distances to go to an assigned place. Now, God does the same thing in the church with us. There are going to be some people who are called to to the pastorate, some people who are called to church planting, some people called out of what's right in front of them to something else. Go, Go abroad, go overseas as a missionary. But for the bulk of the people in the church, the work that God calls us to is right in front of us. It's right there. We don't need to go to seminary to do the work, to be equipped for the work. The local church is meant to do the equipping for the work. We don't have to go off and find something really cool and hip to do. The work is laid before us. You could say that this work, regardless of if you're a person that's getting called away to something or called to the work right in front of you, this work starts with your own home. This work starts right here in the household of God. In fact, this is one of the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3. That an elder must be able to manage his own household well, because if he can't do that, how is he going to manage the household of God? It starts at home. That's where the priority of gospel ministry resides. Now, what are we doing in gospel ministry? what What is the task of it what what are what are we actually giving ourselves to? well, You can say it in two ways. Gospel ministry is bringing everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, when Jesus says, I am Lord of all, I am preeminent, I'm above all things, our job is to help situate everything underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. But there's another aspect of that. It's not just this brute force of of pile driving and smashing and and, and, um, just man, what's it called? Uh, Manhandling things into submission. This work is done in calling people to be reconciled to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we submit to the Lord who first laid his life down for us. Now we do this in the household by shepherding our children, by catechizing them, by disciplining them, by giving them a Christian education. Things where Jesus is the center of the universe. Everything is in relation to him. That is our duty as Christian parents. And we do this not only for the benefit of this moment in time or even to make our lives easier on ourselves because there is blessing in that. Train the child in the way they should go and they won't depart for, from it. Like, it will go well for you. That's the first command with a promise to the children. We do this because we want to see the kingdom work continue, not just in this generation into the next generation, but three, four, five, six, seven, all the way down to 10 generations in the future. This is what the apostle Paul prays for in, in Ephesians chapter three. That you would be filled now, where's that? I don't know. He, I can't find it. He says, listen, but this is what he says. He said, the glory of God would be in the church through all generations. If we want to see that, it starts at home. Now, if you're a parent, if you think you need help with what that looks like, hey, let's talk. Go, go to your missional community. And ask people who are doing it well, who are are maybe a step or two ahead of you, but this is something that we can all grow in as Christian parents. But it doesn't just stop at the house, it spills into the, the building up of the body, the church. It goes into the covenant family of God. And so we take that, we start rebuilding in places, in relationships, investing in your mission community, discipling other people who are hanging out and are committed to the work that Jesus is doing, spurring on one another towards good works. And it goes beyond that. It goes beyond the church. It goes into the city, to the workplace, to your gym, to your neighborhood, the, 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 the city market, wherever you're finding yourself, wherever God puts you, He's put you there for ministry work. He's trying to make an appeal through you. Now, we advance the kingdom of heaven in two ways. I mean, it boils down to this one, good works. We do good works. We, we do what is righteousness in the, righteous in the eyes of God. We give ourselves to those things. Number two, which precedes this, is we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that no matter how many good works you try to accumulate for yourself to get, to get square in the eyes of God or, or get the approval of other people around you, Jesus has accomplished that for you. And so we become people who not only do good works, but proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these two pieces working together, it's like a bicycle pedal. Proclaim, demonstrate, proclaim, demonstrate. That's how the kingdom of heaven advances, little by little, incremental. Church. let us, let us get consumed by the vision. Let us find ourselves just blown away with what it is our Lord intends to do and let us with gladness and joy step into the work that God has called us to. Echoing the psalmist of Psalm 90 who says, oh, "Strengthen the work of our hands." We we say the same. We pray the same to God. "Strengthen the work of our hands. Use us for the kingdom of heaven." You know, put the spirit of Christ in me, let the the energy of Christ that works in me propel us toward the glorious end of seeing heaven come down to earth. And as we do this, church, let us not forsake and overlook the small things. These small things, the small acts of rebuilding accumulate fast. Let us give ourselves to what's in front of us. Let's honor Jesus, lay our life down. We work for him because he has done the ultimate work for us on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that we are not a perishing people. We are not a people that you've just left to sort of wither away. You have given us a vision. Jesus, you say that your desire is to make heaven come down to earth, And you've called us into your family. You've called us into the family business to be part of this, to be workers of Christ. And so I pray, like Paul tells Timothy, to to show yourself as one approved for the work, a good worker approved. Lord, God, help us as a church to step in, to be good workers approved, not because we're trying to earn something, not because we're trying to get a pat on the back from you so we can get our puncher ticket to heaven, but because Jesus has done the work for us. And as we demonstrate and proclaim the glory and goodness of God, would you draw people to yourself? The church would grow, that people who are once outside of the covenant find themselves inside of the household of God and call you their heavenly father and join with us as we seek to renew the city. This is not a task that we can do in our own power. We need you. We need your power. We need your spirit. We need your energy. So as we are doing the hard work of raising our children in the way that we should go, they should go, would you help us and faithfulness and diligence, perseverance. God, would you be glorified as we give ourselves to the work? Would you put a hammer in our hand and tell us to get after it? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.